Hello, and welcome to Travel Therapy. I'm your host, Stuart Katz. In this podcast, we explore how mental illness is treated and destigmatized across the globe. What can we learn from international approaches? What can we learn from each other? Hi, welcome to our inaugural episode of Travel Therapy, where we're traveling the world and meeting with various individuals who shed a light on stigma surrounding mental health and mental wellness and allow us to better understand ourselves and those around us. Our first guest today is Noah Charney, who's actually the editor of a book that I'm going to be publishing on World Mental Health Day on October the 10th of this year. Noah, thank you for coming, and we really appreciate your being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be your first guest. Thank you. I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a little, what intrigued you to actually edit my book and tell us a little about yourself. Sure. So I'm um, an author of more than 20 books now under my own name. I'm actually a professor of art history, but I do various things like do TV and podcast hosting. And every once in a while, I'll take on uh, a book editing project, but I'm quite selective about it. So I have to say there are some reasons why yours intrigued me. I usually do maybe one or two editing projects a year, and yours ticked a lot of boxes for me that I thought not only would it be interesting and fun to work with you, but also it was a book that was going to do a lot of good. I'm curious. I know what I intended with the book, but uh, what kind of good do you think that it can do? Yours intrigued me because it had a number of touchstones that I thought would not only be fun to work with, but also would be helpful to your readers. The first one that intrigued me was the idea that mental health, mental wellness is a journey. And this is something that I've experienced myself. Uh, I grew up with a father who was a psychiatrist. So this has always been something that I've been in touch with. And the dialogue around mental well-being is something that I think has meaning for everyone. I don't think there's a family on the planet that hasn't been touched by it in some way. And I'm not going to give away too much because, of course, you got to read the book to get all the goodies. But for me, I was intrigued to have a travel professional's eye view of what it's like to travel. It's full of travel tips that I thought were interesting. And it lifts the veil on the travel industry because you have these amazing points in your background, like you're an executive for a major airline. And what's that like? And you have this race to try to visit 100 countries by your 60th birthday. And I've been to, I don't know, maybe 20 countries, if that. So that's that's a fantasy world for me. I was also interested in your exploration of um, Judaism in different countries. And in some countries where it might not even occur to people that there is a Jewish population to speak of. And then this other aspect that I think is very moving is how you feel compelled to travel on your own, on your own expense, and without any infrastructure to crisis centers whether it's a refugee center or in the wake of some sort of natural disaster, um, and just doing whatever you can to help anyone who needs help. So there are these elements, I think it's a beautiful story, but you also tell it with humor. And it's very important for something that has a memoir component that the voice of the author is someone we want to hang out with for, you know, 250 pages. And so you had me right at the opening. It's a very funny, warm, endearing tone that you have. And that's what really drew me. And I think you could have been talking about anything. You could be talking about the mechanics of bicycle repair, and I would have still found it fun because of your authorial voice. Quite a compliment. Um, God, should hire you. So there's a couple of things you said. You said you grew up with a father that's a psychiatrist and had the dialogue growing up. Yeah, I don't know if I'm embarrassed or it's just a sign of the times I'm a little older than you. I didn't have the dialogue. 
I only found the dialogue about five years ago, and that was with my own children and my family. I never had it with my parents or with extended family. And even with friends, um, I don't know if I lived a sheltered life. I never thought so. I don't know if many, any of my friends lived a sheltered life, but mental illness was certainly never anything we thought about. And mental wellness, well, of course, we're all well, we're healthy, we eat, we have a roof over our heads. You know, we considered that was mental wellness. Um, I think the word was wellness and we left off the word mental and not having an understanding of what it meant. Was it, is it a generational thing, do you feel? Or is it, um, is it just, um, I missed out on it? It's a very good question. I honestly don't know, especially because um, I lived in the U.S. only until about age 22. Um, and then I've been living in Europe since then. And so I, it may be something that is generational. It may have been something that's more, I don't know if it's geographic or socioeconomic also within the U.S. There might be parts of the U.S. where it's, it's less openly talked about. But um, for example, at all the schools I went to, there was a real proactive concern on the part of teachers and faculty to make sure everyone was feeling okay. Um, I went to a boarding school called Choate, and at any given moment, I remember the statistic, 20% of the students were in therapy, and it was provided free by the boarding school. And that meant that, you know, a much higher percentage at some point was in therapy. This was just something, you know, if you um, sprain your ankle, you go to the doctor. If you get a pneumonia, you go to the doctor. If you're not feeling good, you go to a different kind of doctor and talk about it. Um, I think that was both fortunate and very proactive on the part of the school I went to. But it was the same at my elementary school and at the college I went to. And so maybe that's something to do with the Northeast. You know, you, we grew up watching, I don't know, Woody Allen movies where everybody's talking about what they said to their therapist this week. And it was there was no taboo at all. And now when I live in Europe, uh, lots of people go to therapists, but nobody's allowed to talk about it. That's sort of the, the social norm as you can go, but it's not something you talk about and people are a little bit embarrassed about it sometimes or feel like it's somehow a failure if you need to go. When in fact, it was completely normal when I was growing up and I've been in therapy on a number of occasions for things that when I look back, it, it was not something that was particularly catastrophic, but just, I think everybody, I, th I really think everyone on the planet could benefit from therapy, whether or not there's a, a specific issue. And uh, certainly you don't need a, a clinical diagnosis to benefit from talking with someone and, and sort of setting your thoughts in order. A lot of it is about, you know, the situation looked at from the tiniest different angle can make things feel a lot better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I wish I knew this about 55 years ago. I believe everyone can gain from therapy. Not only can everyone gain from therapy, I think those that aren't in therapy lose out. So I think the fact that you were afforded the opportunity to have a therapist in school is golden. I actually think it should be a required course that everyone have a certain amount of therapy through the school system and when not provided, that it be provided through the local community. I'm a big believer that community support and knowledge and understanding of therapeutic modalities and practices can benefit the community as a whole. Um, I think it's a cost saver that can be implemented in local communities. I think it's a great idea. What I'm curious about is you've had so much experience in different countries how would you compare the way people view being in therapy in different countries you visited and also places you've lived? Because you've lived in a number of different places. I'm For people who have not read the book yet and have not heard other podcast episodes, maybe you want to just tell them in brief about um, where you've lived over the course of your life. So I've lived basically um, in Panama, where I was born. 
um, in San Diego. I went to boarding school, a high school in Chicago. And then while I returned to San Diego in college, I then returned, uh, I went to New York for grad school and lived in Dallas as well for another grad school. And then for the past 13 years, I've lived in Israel. So I would say that I've experienced the world and living, but also traveled, as you mentioned, almost 100 countries. Um, we'll be hitting the 100th uh, very soon. And I've had the opportunity to meet with, I, I want to say thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people. And never did the word therapy come up until recently when I searched it out. And I still find that most of the world, probably about 80 to 90%, the stigma surrounding mental well-being and certainly mental illness exists. You know, when you hang around with like-minded people, you think that everyone's field shares. And people that I reach out to tend to share my views and feelings, but they're the ones that believe in it. But I'm, I'm amazed some countries, first world countries, do a worse job, in my opinion, than third world countries. Uh, perhaps because they have the resources and don't utilize them properly, whereas in the third world, they don't have the resources to so get very, very creative. And I think some of the creativity that they employ there is something that could be brought to first world countries. And the things that I'm now approaching various communities and suggesting that they, they bring them because it doesn't really require a lot of funding. Um, and they don't have to go to, you know, the local, they don't have to tax the, the person. It's just everyone giving their part. First of all, by recognizing that mental illness is real. Uh, Pre-COVID, they say that at any given time, one, one out of every four people is living with a mental illness. That means um, that's more people than live with heart disease. That's more people than suffer from strokes in a year. They're living with a mental illness, and at least 50% of the world's population will have a mental illness at some point in their lifetime. Again, more than people that in a lifetime will have heart disease or have cancer. Uh, while they're common, mental illness is more common, and yet we don't address it. So to me, that's frightening. There are places I believe change is beginning to take place, but it, I, I don't understand why it's taking so long. Um, and again, that's much everywhere I go. I mean, I was talking to someone, uh, I have them on another podcast and probably in a couple of months, in certain parts of the world, mental illness is considered a crime, and you go to jail and behind bars and in chains. And I thought we were done with that, and apparently we're not. So what's an example of a developing country that had practices that you think were surprisingly good, admirable, and that could be adopted by more affluent countries? Well, one is in Zimbabwe that I came across, and you have, um, I forgot the real name, I call it the Grandmother Project. But, you know, grandmothers that, uh, whether they were working in their younger years or places like Africa, for the most part, they didn't, they tended at the home, that they train them. And when I say train them, I'm basically probably have a couple of afternoons of discussion with them. And they plop benches all over the city of Harare, which is the capital of Zimbabwe. And they have their turn where they sit down and people come and just tell them their problems. And it's, it's incredible what it's done. They say it's reduced the suicide rate and certainly made people more aware of their mental well-being and mental wellness. It's improved. So the grandmothers love what they're doing. It gives them purpose in life and people take advantage of it. And I feel something like that, it's something that could be put into any, just any community. Another um, example is, you know, in, in much of the world that I've traveled, I hear how usually a mental illness is diagnosed at first when you, not diagnosed, but recognized when you go to the GP, to the general practitioner, and supposedly they refer you to a psychiatrist, but so often things are missed and it's understandable. And in today's, whether it's socialized medicine or insurance-based medicine, often the GP doesn't know how to deal with the answers that they may get, um, which is a problem in itself. So I think that the integration of 
physical and mental well-being, and it cannot be done in 10 minutes, is crucial. Um, a country that I saw it done extremely well, um, which was a shock to me and eye-opening, is Cuba, where the average, the average appointment seem, from what I understood is about 30 minutes, and a tremendous integration between the mental and the physical. I think a lot of it is just um, people need compassionate ear, and you don't necessarily need extensive or specialized training. That's something that I was reading about you doing in your volunteering for crisis locations. A lot of what you're doing is just talking to people and not rushing them and hearing their story. And uh, I think there's a tremendous benefit to that. It also makes it easier because somebody doesn't have the sense that I'm seeing a doctor. It's not costing them something. It doesn't there's no stigma attached to, to speaking with a friendly person, even if they happen to be a stranger, about your experience. But there's a decompression. It's like people get built up with, with so much tension and steam, and they need a release valve. And sometimes that release valve is just speaking to someone in an unhurried way who's sympathetic. So I don't think people necessarily need formal therapy if someone has a, a clinical illness that may be a different story, but just about everyone would benefit from a sympathetic ear and that can unfortunately be lacking. So that's one of the tremendous benefits I think uh, that you do in your travels. And it's interesting to hear about grandmothers on park benches in, in Zimbabwe providing those sympathetic ears. Yeah, there's no question about that. And I, you know, it's taken me, I guess I'm still in the development process of it, but there's a, I'm heavily involved in mental health first aid and uh, both in Israel and in the U.S. And one of the, there's an action plan like in, you know, CPR or physical first aid. And one of the actions and the one that I should treat them all equally, but one of them that I appreciate the most is what's called listen non-judgmentally. And it's just really listening to the person, whether in a crisis or a non-crisis situation. Of course, in a non-crisis, you hope it doesn't develop into crisis, but just listening to them. And I've come to learn that silence is golden. When you're sitting with someone or texting with them or just listening, it's it's amazing what you can, what kind of support you can be offering. And I've definitely tried to do more of that. And, you know, it doesn't mean multitasking, which I'm notorious for. Um, and I try to do a little less when I'm involved with someone, certainly in crisis, but it's, it's, um, it's just really letting them know that you're there to listen and has brought me to what I, what I, again, I really believed in educating is the community. You know, I, I think we've spoken about it that, you know, meds are great when they work, but getting them to work is complicated because as they say, it's a cocktail and you got to mix it. And I'm not a bartender, so I, I really don't understand it. Therapy, we've talked about as well. It's great and it's wonderful, but a good therapist is only as good as it is for you at any given time. And my good therapist today may be a horrible therapist in a month from now. And my worst therapist of two years ago today may be my best, and it's going to be the worst for you. So I say it's, the therapist is only as good for you as it is at any given time. However, family, community, your friends, they're always there for you. And, and if not, they should be. And it's educating the family and community of what can be done, because they're not going to be your therapist for 45 minutes a week. Or if you have a double session, you know, 90 minutes a week or every two weeks, they're there more frequently. And I think the interesting component in helping people is the family and community. And that's one that I think we can together educate. That's also important because they're physically there. We've never been more technologically capable of being in communication. 
with other people, but it almost is always through a screen. And um, that's okay. It's better than nothing, but it's nothing like being in a room with somebody and sort of feeling their vibe. Um, and so not always feasible to be in the same place with people, but I think that there's much to be said for that direct, I'm in the room with you, you have my full attention. And also the unhurried attention. I remember my insurance in the U.S. was was shifting gears um, when my father was practicing psychiatry. He's retired now. But um, you would have insurance covering sessions only if a psychiatrist gave medication. That would be one of the criteria. So they didn't have the option not to give medicine, even if it wasn't necessary. And also the insurance company would dictate how many sessions based on what your diagnosis is. And these diagnoses are complicated because it's fluid. And um, sometimes you have more than one issue at a time. And for a bureaucrat to say, okay, you pressed, you have to take a medicine and um, you need eight sessions. That's just arbitrary. And the chances of that being sufficient are, are really limited. So to be honest, in the U.S., it was a problem because the, the best and most conscientious psychiatrists were shifting to a private practice only and not accepting people with insurance because the insurance would dictate this. And then people without insurance, um, if they didn't have the financial means, couldn't get good therapy. And it was a, an imploding problem that I don't know if that's still the case today, but my sense is it's, it's similar. And it, it's an issue when you try to have um, a blanket solution for a very complex problem where each person is unique and can be helped in different ways and needs things in their own time. And so a one size fits all just, just doesn't work when we're talking about this sort of issue. Yeah, there's no question that one size fits all doesn't work. And another, another thing that I've learned with mental health is, and it's been very difficult for me, is um, with my type A personality and liking to get things done in a hurry and to do it, um, it doesn't work that way with mental health. It takes time. Um, it takes time and it takes patience and lots of it. And that's been a struggle for me, but I think I'm beginning to adapt to it and understand that. I say it's like a roller coaster and it's, you know, you got some some fast moments, some slow moments when it's going up the hill. You got some loop, sometimes a double loop. Um, but it, but you know, what goes up must come down. So, you know, I think that's the best analogy, or one of the best analogies that we're all on a roller coaster, and it's not a roller coaster that we bought a ticket for. But it's recognizing that you know you have to enjoy it and recognize that when it's tough. Um, and this is a lot easier said than done. But recognize when it's tough. Um, and that's why we want to develop the coping mechanisms when we're not in a bad place, so that when we're in the bad place, we can at least try to reach for them. Um, I say that, you know, something to say, well, just reach for your coping mechanism and where's your first aid kit? Well, I have it. And now most of us don't have it, but I have it. But it's not always easy to reach for it. And that takes practice. I say it's like learning a language. A lot of the therapeutic modalities that are out there, one of them that I, I've come to love is DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And that's a language. And you know, we can go to school and learn a language and you can take Spanish two years, three years, four years, five years of high school and learn it or any other language. But if you're not practicing it, you're gonna forget it. And I say a number of the therapeutic modalities are the same. You have to practice them. It's also a situation where we are our own worst advisors and therapists without specialized training because we are uh, caught in the web of our own story, which may not be an uh, objective story the way someone outside would see it. 
And it's like we writers are our own worst editors because we are so in the thick of whatever it is we're creating that we don't see what parts we can cut, what parts need to be edited. That's one of the reasons why a sympathetic voice, but preferably a trained therapist, is just going to help you see your own situation in a way that you might not be able to because you're so immersed in it, especially looking at logical fallacies or assumptions that are based on fear of maybe what other people think, which may or may not have any link to reality. Like I might think, oh, my nose is so big, everyone thinks I look ridiculous. And it may be that nobody on the planet has ever thought that. <laughs> but, but if I'm stuck in that zone, it's hard to get out. And sometimes you need someone, especially someone who you see as an authority figure and whose opinion you respect to say, you know what, have you thought this through? There are logical fallacies in your own argument. And what strikes me is just how slight a shift of the angle of the exact same situation can suddenly feel so much better. Um, it's like you're, you're lying in a cramp and just the tiniest movement can relieve the pressure when in actuality, nothing in your life has changed except the way you're looking at a situation or aspect of your life. So true. It's, it's really so true. You know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, it's just like, you know, helping people by listening to them. And you said earlier that I travel helping people. And I, I got to reveal that the truth of the matter is when I do that, when I'm listening to people or traveling to the world to help people, I'm doing it for selfish reasons because I'm really helping myself. And there's nothing more than I enjoy and gives me further motivation than feeling that I'm helping other people. When I'm not helping other people, I'm, I'm just not comfortable. Can you give an example of, of one of your journeys to some crisis center where you helped people and maybe from, from the moment you learned about the crisis to traveling there, can you walk us through to give a sense of what the sort of approach is that you have? Wow, uh, that's a heavy question. So some people say I look for crises. And, you know, I, I hear about, I hear about, you know, there's all kinds of crises and what's what, what gets me to go to one place over another. And sometimes I hear of it and, you know, sometimes I'll plan it like a week in advance when there's a crisis. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a first responder. So I don't, I, you know, I'm not a medic. I'm not a paramedic. I'm not a fireman. I usually go um, when I've gone is to just go and be with the people and help wherever I can help. I don't go with organizations um, primarily because I don't like bureaucracy and I guess I don't like being told what to do. So I go and find my own what to do, what's needed locally, not through an organization. I'm just trying to think of an example. There's a few of them in the book, but one, one that comes to mind is the earthquake in Nepal was, I didn't know where Nepal was. Now, I didn't know where Mount Everest was. I didn't know it was in Nepal. Um, so I, I never, you know, I always had this dream I would climb Everest, never did I really know what it entailed, but it sounded cool. But I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about Nepal. And there was this earthquake there. And sometimes it started because, not in this case, but sometimes people will say, hey, how come you're not there? Like, I've earned this reputation that I'll run to disaster. It was, you know, whatever. And Nepal was one that I literally planned that day. I remember it was a Sunday. And in general, I try not to be away for Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. I try to be home. Lately, it haven't, I haven't been as successful. But this week, I definitely wanted to be home. And it was a Sunday. And I said, yeah, maybe I should go to Nepal. I didn't have a whole lot going on that week. So literally about three in the afternoon, I booked a flight and I, I went to Nepal. And I, you know, I landed on Monday, 
literally landed in the airport. Um, I had no plan. And, you know, when a place was in shambles, you just start talking to people, which is what I did. And from there, I just volunteered, you know, wherever it was needed, um, whether it was transporting rice, it was going out to the villages to helping people try to build their homes, which are really huts. We would call them huts. They call them homes. To engaging with the homeless and providing them food that I could find. So that's really what it takes. But what I found more than anything was just sharing stories, hearing about their life, you know, not coming in as a snobby Israeli or American that, you know, I, I have the world, but just really, really being able to hear about them before and before the earthquake. And of course, what they're going through now and what their plans are for after. Is there anything about Jewish culture that is more welcoming of, I don't want to say helping others because most cultures have that element, but helping people from a sense of dialoguing about how people are feeling. I'm just thinking back to your earlier question because I come from a non-practicing Jewish background, uh, cultural affiliation, but, but that was all. But I was wondering if that's the acceptance of therapy as being something normal and helpful and good and looking to help people through dialogue and sympathy. I wonder if there's an element to that that is linked to Judaism, or do you think that that is just on a person-by-person basis? I, I think if you were to look in the Jewish religion, some people would like to say it is linked to it with tikkun olam and whatnot. I actually think it's linked to humanity. I think if you're in a good humane circle, um, it should be natural. If parents see their kids do it, they will likely do the same. Uh, not always. And the opposite is also true. If parents don't, doesn't mean the kids aren't going to. But I think that's linked to humanity. Sometimes people that are unaffiliated with re- with any religion, it doesn't have to be Judaism, they, they're missing that because they're just not in the circles that would provide for it. I think most religions avail themselves to that. You know, there are some elements that feel we only help our own. Again, whatever religion it is, that we should only help those in our own religion. While I respect that, I don't agree with it. And I also think you're missing out on a lot. One of the things I found in I found it in Nepal. I found it in many countries. I really found it when I was in the Philippines, you know, how respectful they are of Jewish people. And, you know, I I don't know the percentage, but the bulk of the country is Catholic. And so many places I went, um, you know, on the various small islands. And of course, in Manila, I just encountered so many people that love, love Jews and how helpful they are. And of course, as a Jew, it made me feel good. But I feel that that's even more reason to go out and do it. So I don't think it's linked to any one religion, but I think that it's a good trait of humanity. And we need need more of that. We've been talking about mental well-being and Judaism and, and volunteering in crises. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about um, some of your travel adventures, because to me, those were the funniest and most memorable anecdotes in the book are some of the situations that were surprising and a little bit unusual during your international travels. Uh, Are there a couple that you might want to mention without giving away too much, because you definitely want to read the adventures of of Stuart Katz around the world, but um, maybe one or two that you would like to give us a little bit of a teaser. Wow. You know, there's so many. I can't even remember them, but that's probably why I wrote the book. So I would remember. Probably what I've enjoyed more than anything is traveling with my family. You know, I love the volunteering and that, but love traveling through the eyes of my kids. And it doesn't matter what age they are. I mean, today they're in their 20s and 30s. And from the time that they were little, I've just loved traveling with them. Kind of made them run around because I like to run around. Um, we don't stay in any one place for too long, except for on a cruise ship. I mean, even then it was, you know, different port every day. But I really, really enjoyed that 
that. And even when we would travel as a family, we would always try to spend one day or so on some kind of volunteer project. Kids, of course, did not want to do that. As they got older, they did. But when they were younger, they did not want to do that and, and generally thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I remember them in the barrios in Argentina, uh, working with homeless there. Of course, we took them to the soccer stadium afterwards or before, I don't remember, but so many places around the world that just watching them. Yeah, there are some humorous stories. We'll save those for the book. But again, in every location we went, we would take at least one day, we would take an organized tour. Um, some of the kids liked it more, some less. I'm not really an organized tour person. I like, you know, walking the streets. I feel that I can learn about a, certainly about a community and a culture more than, you know, getting on a bus, get off and on, off and on. And it doesn't really matter where. I remember once uh, when I was traveling with my wife with Carol, we were in Japan. We were actually on a layover in Japan. We were overnight in Tokyo. And when we first went from Narita, the airport, to Tokyo, I don't remember how much it was, but it was like $200 in a cab. And I said, there is no way we're taking this to go back to the airport tomorrow. Now, neither of us speak Japanese, don't understand the Japanese alphabet. And I said, we're going to figure this out. Um, and there were no signs at that time. There were no signs in Japan in English. That's changed. Um, so I literally memorized the characters and we found our way back and we're here. So we made it back. Um, but that was definitely an adventure. One thing that I really liked and I want to try with my own kids is how you would uh, play a game where the kids wouldn't know where you were going on holiday, but you'd leave like a treasure hunt. Can you maybe tell them one instance of that? Because that, that's really fun. What's ironic is even a few years ago, we were going on a trip and my kids still wanted to play the game when they were well into their 20s. So for usually a vacation a year, we tried to travel twice a year when the kids were growing up as a family, not always, sometimes only once a year, where we take a big trip. And at once a year, we would play what we called the game. And every time was different. And we always gave them usually a month, six weeks before we were going. Uh, we like to surprise them and we would make up clues. And you know, as the kids were different ages, we gave them clues at different levels that were appropriate for them. And it required research often where they, you know, they had to do a little research on the country or the language or the destination to understand the currency, the topography. And we would give them clues. And every day was a different clue. And usually we would rule a country or city off and they would have to keep guessing where we were going. Um, sometimes we only, you know, we went to the airport and they got on a plane. And if we were making a connection, they had no idea where the final destination was. You know, most of this, well, not all of it, it was pre 9-11 where, you know, we, I took their passports and I would point the kids out so they wouldn't know where our final destination was. Um, they knew where the first place was, but they never knew where the ultimate destination was. And every once in a while, I think your wife was also playing the game, whether she knew it or not, where you would bring her somewhere as a surprise as well. Yeah. I mean, there were times before we had care when the kids were young and we would leave them behind that, you know, I would surprise. I remember one time we were living in Dallas at the time. I don't remember if we had kids or not. Maybe Adina was a baby. And there was this ice storm in Dallas. And I said, I got to get out of here. So we had some free tickets to like anywhere. And uh, I said, hey, we're going to the Bahamas. My wife didn't know, you know, Bahamas or, you know, went to the airport. And I actually remember we were changing planes in Chicago and, you know, we went to Chicago, which she knew. And then I go, okay, go to gate H13. And she went and she still didn't like pay attention to where we were going. And we ended up, you know, going to the Bahamas. And I remember that, that, that was a, we went to the Bahamas like four times in a year because uh, we kept getting bumped from our flights and we got free tickets. Uh -huh. um, so we, you know, every time we got bumped, we used the tickets, we went back to the Bahamas. Now we didn't like the Bahamas, but we liked the fact that we got free tickets. Sure. Um, so we just kept going back until we finally did get free tickets. And uh, that was the end. That was the last time I was in the Bahamas. So you're closing in on your hundredth country visited. Maybe, maybe you're 
we're going to record a special episode on location. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? But um, at what point did you decide to proactively chase 100 countries and out of, I think there are 198, give or take, on the planet? And will you stop at 100 or are you going to see how many you can do? So, you know, for my 50th birthday, my goal was to go to all 50 states in the U.S. And it wasn't it wasn't it was a no brainer because I only I was missing one state. Um, for a couple of years, I was missing North Dakota. Um, so we decided to take a family trip to North Dakota. And from Israel, it's not around the corner. And as my kids say, they know that North Dakota will not be their 50th state because they've done it. And then a few years after that, you know, they say, what are you going to do for your 60th? And I really hadn't given it much thought. And how about probably five years ago, I said, I want to hit 100 countries. And I had done about, I think, like 78 or something at the time. So I had to be pretty aggressive. And I said, not a big deal, you know, you know, about five countries a year, it's doable. Well, then we had this thing called COVID and COVID basically didn't allow me to move. So the past year, I was pretty aggressive, you know, but I couldn't just go to a country. So every country I went to, I was looking at their mental health system. And that's really what um, really got me chasing the international, the global aspect of mental health is, it was kind of a dual purpose, was getting to a hundred and was also um, learning what's there. It was fascinating. Um, I don't plan to stop at 100. I don't have a real goal in mind afterwards. We'll see. We'll see what will happen. But there are there are definitely countries that I still want to get to and, and hope to. We might need travel therapy too, once because if you got 98 more after you hit 100 to be in every country in the world, do you, do you know what the 100th country will be or is it going to be a surprise? I do. I do. It's going to be Bulgaria. That Bulgaria should feel honored. This is a, This is a good deal. They should throw a party for you there. Yeah, we're going to Bulgaria. It was it had to be we have a very short window when all the kids can go and I'm available during the summer. We had to find something close to home that I haven't been to. Well, Stuart, it was such a treat to help you on your path of writing this book in whatever small way I, I did. And uh, and I'm so delighted that you're doing this podcast. I think it's going to be a really fun podcast to listen to. But this and the book, I think, are going to help a lot of people um, as well as entertaining them. And um, anyone listening to this, definitely read the book. Definitely subscribe to the podcast. This is the place to be. And it's really been a pleasure to, to get to know you. And thank you for inviting me to, to help out as an editor, because it really was a special treat. No, I, I appreciate everything you've done and hopefully will continue to do. And you know, certainly be on the podcast. My mantra has kind of become that if you can save one life, everything's worth it. And that's what I'm hoping through the podcast and through the book that be able to save one life, one life at a time, and hopefully more than one, but uh, certainly one at a time. So I appreciate it and thank all our listeners and we look forward to another episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Travel Therapy. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. See you next time. And until then, be well and take care of yourself so that you can better take care of others.